studios of WNYU. This is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colalucci, and folks, I think we're going to have a great show this week. I'm very excited for it for us today. Uh, we're going to have a uh, guest joining us later in the show. Mr. Matt Schulte is going to be joining us. He is going to be discussing a lot about both sports business in general, as well as his thoughts on the MLB lockout, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, definitely going to get into that, as well as the fantastic Monday night football game that just went down in a weather-laden game that had Mac Jones throw for 26 passing yards. It's pretty remarkable to see how that obviously how that went but you know what we're going to get into all of that during the show today uh but first welcome i'm very excited to have you all here and i guess i want to start really just getting into the nfl a little bit i mean you know uh i know we're definitely going to talk about the mlb lockout uh actually the golden days the hall of fame ballot definitely going to get into that a little bit uh for uh, four candidates on the uh, on the modern side, two on the uh, on the early days ballot. We'll get into that. Who I think should have gotten in. Who uh, I think some guys were snubbed. We'll get into that a little bit. Um, as well as we're going to talk a little bit NBA, some injury news. Definitely uh, talk about that a little bit. Um, also go through some college basketball and definitely some college football as well. But first, let's talk about last night. Let's talk Monday Night Football. I think you could have had. I would say maybe the game of the year there. I mean, it was it wasn't necessarily, you know, the best, you know, game from a viewership standpoint. If you're watching this game, you got to be thinking a couple things. First, you got to wonder well, I noticed on uh, – well, I'll point this out a little bit, too. On, uh, on Barstool uh, a couple days ago, uh, right before the game, they were talking about this was the kind of game where if you wanted to know whether or not weather actually impacts a football game – this was the game to figure that out. Torrential wins absolutely killing the passing offense on both sides of the ball. And I would have wondered, one, were both quarterbacks going to pass for under 100 yards? And two, would we see that sort of be reflected on the ground game and in defense? And in a lot of senses, I think that was kind of the case. I mean, uh, when we were going through the first part of the game, I mean, you noticed firsthand that... Well, one, it looked like it was going to be Scorigami. And if you don't know Scorigami, I highly urge you to look that up online. It is a fantastic art of, of NFL scores, which have never happened before. And it looked as though when it was 8-7 at the end of the first that this could have been the case. But you know what? Um, you had uh, – it turned out, obviously, to be a 14-10 final for New England. The defense really showed up. And you know what? When you're talking about the running game, Damian Harris, 11 yards, a carry, a touchdown on 111 yards, and Mac Jones throwing for just 19 yards. I mean, that's that's um, astonishing that in this day and age, quarterbacks a quarterback could win a game by just for throwing for under 20 passing yards. And I know Josh Allen did have 145. He actually ran for more than Devin Singletary, which I thought was kind of surprising. But you know what? When you have a 14-10 game with two teams clearly both vying for playoff spots, you got to know that this is arguably going to be one of the best games of the year. And I think just, I know from an offensive standpoint, didn't really get a lot of people excited, but I think just in terms of getting down to the nitty-gritty, I was very excited to watch this one. I mean, you had a game where... You had a couple questions to think about. I mean, Mac Jones is the front runner for the offensive rookie of the year this year. Obviously, he was a 15th overall pick. He's looked great leading with having – you have Bill Belichick as your coach, and you're obviously following up a legacy in Tom Brady. And you're in an instance where you have, A, tons of pressure on you to succeed, and, B, you have a team that is projected to underperform this year. I mean – I don't think anyone going into this season would have predicted that New England would be two games ahead of Buffalo in December. That's shocking to me. I mean, you have, well, I would say a Buffalo team that was clearly one of the favorites in the AFC going into the beginning of the season. I know Kansas City definitely would have a little bit to say about that, but you got to figure that in this case, I think, first off, Mac Jones, I would say, is the frontrunner. He is the frontrunner for offensive rookie of the year. And you know what? There's a couple different candidates out there that I think could have uh, given him a run for his money. I think Michael Parsons and Patrick Sertain will obviously give him a little bit of a sort of a run in that aspect just because on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, uh, Micah Parsons tied for third in pass rush. Uh, he's been extremely versatile on um, most tackles out of any player in the league. Um, 
he's been uh, he sent the quarterback 14 times over his first over the last four games and i figure as though i know the voters are more um accustomed to voting for quarterbacks i feel like on the defensive side of the ball guys aren't as appreciated as much and i still think mac jones is the front runner even with a even with a the win but also the somewhat lackluster performance i know josh allen looked a little better but I still think Mac Jones, I think Bill Belichick, first off, was focusing on the running game more, and I think he didn't need to use Mac Jones, but I certainly don't think that discredits him as a player. And, I mean, lastly, well, we're definitely going to get into some of the uh, other stuff in the NFL in terms of the playoff picture, but the game, uh, just to wrap up on the Pats-Bills game, I really think that in terms of sort of the stage being set for the next couple of weeks, the Patriots and Bills are going to play each other again before the Christmas holiday. And I think when we see them on more of a level playing field, when we don't have this sort of huge weather factor that impacts how the game is going to go, I feel like that's definitely going to be a bigger indicator of where these teams really are. I feel like it's hard to judge on this game. I still think Buffalo has a reasonable chance to catch them. I don't know if they're going to. I still, you know, when I, uh, a couple months ago when we started the show, I did say Buffalo was going to keep the division lead and hold on for the rest of the season. And on top of that, there's a New England team that has came out of absolutely nowhere. But when we say absolutely nowhere, do we really think that's true? Because, you know, everyone always bashed New England for not being able to adapt after Tom Brady left. And now that you have a run, this is the first run, by the way, since Brady has left where there's any sort of indication that this team could be a formidable playoff contender. I mean, last year was just a wash. There was no indication that they were going to be successful. And now that you're at a point where they're on a six, seven game win streak, you have to look at this team more directly and whether or not they can contend with the AFC teams that could they could potentially meet in the playoffs. I know you're going to have Kansas City obviously making a buy for them, uh, Tennessee. Um, and an interesting thing to think about with Tennessee, uh, I know obviously uh, they're in a – they're obviously clearly ahead in the AFC South. I mean, I know Indianapolis may give them a run. I don't think they're going to catch them. Uh, but even without their key players, Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown out right now, they're still looking as though they are – ahead of the curve in the AFC because they've been the most consistent out of all the playoff teams. It's kind of remarkable to say that when you have a league with Buffalo and Kansas City, but we also think that Derrick Henry might come back at the end at the beginning of January, and if they can get him back for the playoff run, they could arguably be the favorite out there because throughout the entire season, no matter playing difficult competition or division rivals, they have managed to remain a consistent threat both on the defensive side of the ball and even without their best offensive weapons compiling an 8-4 and four record. Their offense has remained in the top first, in the top percentage of offenses throughout the league, and I feel as though it's important to note that even though there are still, I still think Kansas City could easily beat them, I think Tennessee has to sort of be the quote-unquote favorite and i find it weird to say that but their performance without these top players is remarkable in that i think that they could easily be successful despite all of the um difficult competition they would have to deal with in the afc as well as even in a potential super bowl matchup where they would have to face i would say a stronger conference this year i think the balance in the nfl really has shifted a little bit i think the nfc has remained sort of the somewhat favorite. I know with New England winning all the Super Bowls over the last 15 years, it's more to say that they're even. But I would say now with teams like Arizona and Green Bay absolutely torching the competition on the other side of the league, I feel like even with Tennessee as the favorite, it's going to be tough to um, judge whether or not they're going to be successful or not. But in terms of the playoff picture itself, I know we've talked about it a little bit, but now we're at the point where we can start making you know, sort of conclusions as to where this is going to be headed. I think, you know, Arizona, we haven't seen any clinches yet, but we're sort of at the point where, okay, we know what's going to happen. And I think when you have, obviously in the NFC, you have these sort of big division leads that I don't think anyone's going to catch Green Bay or Arizona, or I would say even uh, Tennessee for that matter. Um, I think the AFC wild card is going to be 
wild. It's going to be, I mean, they, they call it the wild card for a reason, don't they? I mean, it's going to be great to see how, if you looked at the playoff picture, you know, when NFL Red Zone ends, uh, I know I was watching that, they show you the playoff picture. And when you have 14 teams, at or 13 or 14 teams, Above five and seven, you know it's going to be great at the end of December and early January. I know that uh, you have Cincinnati holding on the last spot right now. There's a lot of things to think about in terms of, you know, who they collect in terms of uh, strength of schedule. Because, you know, when you have uh, the six and the seven right now being Buffalo, Cincinnati, Buffalo and Cincinnati, you have to think that's going to change. I know that. Buffalo will take on New England, and that could potentially change that. You have a crucial matchup coming up with Justin Herbert going. Uh, you had a cru- you had a crucial matchup this week with Justin Herbert going up against Joe Burrow, and LA really proved a lot in that aspect because you had sort of this battle of these two young quarterbacks. Who is more ahead of the game with Burrow being the number one overall pick and Justin Herbert being picked number six? And you know, a lot of people have jumped on the Justin Herbert train just because. Because he has had a more potent offense. He's been able to use his weapons more effectively than Joe Burrow. I know, you know, he has uh, Joe Mixon in the, in the backfield, which really helps him sort of gain uh, a lot of offensive, have a more offensive firepower on both sides, both in passing and rushing. But, you know, when you have such a formidable uh, defeat for Cincinnati, where I think you have to look at L.A. as, I would say, the best wild card team. I know that Buffalo is a wild card team now, but their inconsistent play sort of makes me think that I think the Chargers honestly might be a little bit better. I know Buffalo was the favorite sort of in the uh, in the AFC, but you have a I would say a quarterback matchup. If you look at the I would say the top three quarterbacks in the AFC, I think Patrick Mahomes obviously remains in the top spot, but I think Josh Allen definitely taking number two, but Justin Herbert at number three, I think it's feasible. I mean, it's, um, it's very possible that you could see Herbert have a long career in Los Angeles along with Josh Allen. I mean, I think there are some arguments to be made maybe for Lamar Jackson. I think maybe you could put him maybe a little bit higher, but I think Justin Herbert definitely has a strong argument as one of the best quarterbacks in the AFC. And I think in a playoff picture, think about think about the last five or six Super Bowl winning teams. There is always a high marketable quarterback. I mean, the, I think the only exception I can think to the rule was Joe Flacco's win over Kaepernick in Super Bowl 47, 48 or 47, one of the two. Regardless, Joe Flacco, obviously not, you know, a big ticket market quarterback, but there's a reason for that because their defense was so unbeatable. I mean, this was eight years ago. Obviously, you know, times have changed. I mean, think about think about who the Ravens are going with now. They're going with the polar opposite of a guy like Joe Flacco, and they're still remaining contenders. But think about the, uh, all the New England teams were uh, anchored by Tom Brady. Even Tampa Bay, obviously, was anchored by anchored by Tom Brady. Kansas City had Patrick Mahomes, an up and coming superstar. Russell Wilson leading his Seattle team to a Super Bowl. Peyton Manning in Super Bowl Fifty over Cam Newton's Panthers. These were points where I know Peyton retired at the end of the uh, end of that season, but these were teams that were anchored by these weapons that arguably could make the Hall of Fame. Besides Flacco, I think all of the quarterbacks over the last 10 years winning Super Bowls will probably make it. I know you have Rodgers, you have Eli. I think Eli is definitely a Hall of Famer. Flacco probably won't be. Brady will be. Manning, obviously. Brady, uh, Manning already is. Um, Russell Wilson, I think, has a pretty good chance. I know it's a little tricky with him, but he's a franchise guy, and voters love that. They love to see a guy who can stick with the team, win a Super Bowl, and remain a offensive weapon from both early in his career and late in his career. And I think if he has one more deep run with Seattle, I know this year definitely not looking like that, but I think if he gets one more deep run with Seattle, I think it's definitely possible in that aspect. And, you know, with in terms of the AFC, obviously a very close race. Um, you also have Pittsburgh in there. I'm really interested to see if Big Ben can pull off one last sort of run for a wild card spot or a playoff position. I know he has said it's going to be his last season and definitely a Hall of Famer there too. And I figure as though if there's a great marketable story out there, if you have a guy like Big Ben managing to be successful at 
oh, at over 40, I know sort of the over 40 mark is sort of run by Tom Brady, you know. Oh, he's got his TB12 regiment, and he can plow through until he's 50. But Big Ben does not look like Tom Brady. Everybody knows that. And if you have a run here where the Steelers can manage to pick up a higher wild card spot and even get a first round victory, I think Pittsburgh fans will be very happy with that, considering that this team was not expected to be maybe slightly better than 500, but definitely not over the Baltimore Ravens or even Cleveland at the beginning of the season. I think I think a lot of people saw Pitt, uh, Pittsburgh as a you know a three uh, as third place in the AFC North, but they've managed to remain contenders. I know they're third right now, but they've managed to remain contenders consistently. And I think a lot of people would be really excited in Pittsburgh and in the NFL if they were to pull off that kind of run. But I digress. We're moving forward a little bit here. I think you know we're coming up now on week. 14. I know we're going to have 18 weeks this year, which will be a little weird to think about when you grow up with 17 weeks throughout your entire life. But, you know, I think it's better for the NFL in the long run. I think fans are going to like the whole idea of having that extra week. You have three wild card spots now. And I think fans gravitate towards this more intent, these more intense games going forward. I know purists would argue with that, but in the long run, the younger fan would appreciate that extra game and those more marketable matchups. Now, this is the case in the NFL. This is not the case in the MLB, and we're going to get into that sort of expanded playoff format when we talk about the lockout a little bit and some of the things we might see in this new CBA and that expanded playoffs idea. Oh, my God, I, I, might, I might go on a rant about that. That's That would just, for me, destroy sort of what makes baseball so special. But I digress. Let's move on a little bit. Um, get into the NBA now a little bit. You have, uh, we have, I would say, you know, last week, we, uh, or two weeks ago, excuse me, we talked a little bit with Zach Carson on who he thought was going to be some of the top contenders in both the East and the West. And, you know, you had the Suns go on this huge winning streak, and obviously the Warriors snap it with a definitive 20-point victory and Steph Curry looking like the clear favorite for MVP this year. And, you know, when you have such a great matchup in the West between the Warriors and the Suns sort of looking like they're going to deke it out for that 1-2 seed throughout the entire season, I think, you know, when you have obviously those two teams, it'll be really exciting. I think a lot of people are going to gravitate towards that. But I think in the East, you have such a great chance for five or six teams that could potentially deke it out for even, I, I don't know about the one seed, but I think two through six or two through seven could be any order this year. This is not a year where there's a ton of top-heavy teams in the East. You know, we had Milwaukee and Brooklyn coming off these, you know, big runs, and we sort of figured that, okay, they're going to run the East and run away with it, and we're going to have teams, maybe the Knicks are going to have a reasonable year. Maybe the... um Maybe the Heat will retain back from two years ago and get back into one of those top four seeds. But now you have a league where there's somewhat there's somewhat an element of top heaviness, but I don't think that when you look at sort of the play-in game, I think that there's it's anybody's race. And I think that's what I think NBA fans are really excited about that because you have Brooklyn in first right now, but you have Chicago in second, a large market that hasn't seen success since days of since the days of Derrick Rose are finding themselves as the two seed in the East ahead of the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks. It's exciting to see how a team that is really run with a lot of players who sort of have had their moments of success or had their moments of marketability, but in the long run haven't really been able to take that huge next step. You know, you have, I would say, your best player is probably DeMar DeRozan, and he has shown, as Zach said last week, and I'll echo this sentiment again, his success shooting from deep has been remarkable, all considering what he was at previous points in his career. He was shooting below 30% from deep, and now he is a, I would say, an above average uh, an above average guard in terms of his ability to sink from behind the arc. And, you know, you also have, obviously, you have your star in DeRozan, but you have great role play, not role players, but you have great guys around him like Lonzo and Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic. And those guys, well, you have Nikola, who's a fantastic veteran who can grab rebounds and essentially be a force down low for a Chicago team that really hasn't had a great big man since Joakim Noah. And you also have, obviously, Lonzo and uh, Levine, who I would say are 
A, their most marketable assets. I mean, Levine as a former slam dunk champion and Lonzo just being Lonzo. I think Bulls fans are excited to have, despite, you know, they're not homegrown. Let's face it, they're not. I mean, all five of the guys I just mentioned started their careers with a completely different organization and made their name elsewhere. And now you have them all coming together for a Bulls team that was looking to contend, maybe get a good, um, maybe get a reasonable seed in the playoffs and then move forward as maybe go on a run, maybe get a first round win. But now you have a team who's won their uh, I mean, a two-seed, 25 games in, you're a fourth of the way through the season, and I'm excited. I think that this is a great team of guys that Chicago fans can rally around, and I personally think they're going to end up as one of the top four seeds in the East. I know, I think the Bucks are going to get back into that spot. I mean, they're only one game behind. I mean, Chicago's on a four-game winning streak, but you have Milwaukee, who is 16-9. and They've still remained consistent. I know that... You know, you had a 20-point win over the Bucks a couple nights ago. You had a win against the Cavs. I know they lost to the Raptors by a few uh, a couple days ago, but they have remained consistent against both good teams and teams like Denver. Uh, and they've also managed to be successful against their interconference matchups. So definitely going to be a lot to watch going with that. And also, before I uh, move on to the West a little bit, Got to think about sort of these teams in the playoff picture in the nines, the tens, the eighth seeds. If you look at the East right now, you have 12 teams that are within playoff striking distance. I know, you know, I think the Magic and the Pistons have sort of removed themselves from the pack. They're not going anywhere, but everybody else has a chance. There is no reason to think that a team like Indiana cannot come back and resurgent uh, to be that resurgent team that we saw from last year. And, you know, with Demonte Sabonis sort of anchoring this lineup and sort of not necessarily uh, performing to what you think he was going to, I think that you have an aspect where definitely could see Indiana rounding out an eighth seed or a seven or even higher for that matter. We're still early in the year. But you have the sort of the Hawks, the Knicks, the Raptors, those teams who were in it last year, playoff contenders now sort of backing off a little bit. There is no reason to give up on any of these teams. I think it's going to be a great battle in the East right now. And you know what? There's a lot of things to think about just in terms of, you know, who's going to be the team to beat. But I also think that there's a lot of surprises in the West that I think that will ultimately impact the play in structure. I don't think it's going to impact the top seeds, but I think, you know, you have a Grizzlies team who, let's face it, they won by 73 points, the largest margin of victory in NBA history. I mean, I, I, I personally, I did not watch the game. I saw the highlights at the end. Just the way that this is sort of this is the kind of thing you would see in an AAU game when you have one team that is just so clearly better than the other, and the other team is just you know a, a, a hosh posh of you know random people, random kids from uh, random locations, and it just they don't mesh together, and you have a final that's like seventy five to twelve, and you know they stop at after twenty points because it's so bad. But you have a seventy three point mercy rule kind of game in the NBA. Does that prove that the Grizzlies are a great team? Well, you know, obviously John Moran has broken out as one of arguably the best guards in the Western Conference. And when you have a team like that being as successful against a mediocre organization, it's hard to really say that that really, you know, can I can judge a team by that. But definitely something to look at in terms of, one, how streaky this team can be that if they do go on a run, that it would be hard for any team to contend with them. I know it's the Thunder, but a 73-point win is nothing to write. It is nothing to scratch away and remove from any indication. This is the in the entire history. The fact that no one has won by this much says a lot about this Grizzlies team. And you know, you have um, a, lot, a thing to look at sort of in the West is maybe Houston a little bit. You know, they've been winning recently, but I think it's interesting. You know, they weren't expected to do anything. I mean, you have a team led by John Wall, for that matter. And it's it's interesting how 
we're so far removed from a from an organism. We're, we're so far removed from the James Harden day. It's remarkable to think that this is a Rockets team with Jalen Green, John Wall, and Kevin Porter. I mean, if I had said that to you three years ago, I think Rockets fans would be absolutely astonished to see how far their team had dropped over the span of the last three years. But they've won six in a row. But now, obviously, this is this is honestly. I know we're early in the season, but. If they don't show that they can do anything against good teams, there's nothing really more to say about that. I think, you know, a six-game winning streak is nothing to write, is nothing to scratch off and say that it doesn't matter. But I think there's, you know, a certain extent to which we can judge a team that started one and sixteen. The fact that they're seven and sixteen now does say a lot about their resilience. But I do think that if you face teams that you know you're not as good as and you can't beat them it doesn't say anything about the organization really i think people can be a little quick to judge when teams go on winning streaks and i think that speaks a lot about the suns too because when you win 18 in a row that's a bit of a different story you have a suns team that is we're clearly we've seen they're already built for a finals run they took the bucks to six games and now they're sort they have to prove that they're legitimate consistent contenders and can sort of remain a force in the western conference which has always been dominated by la golden state the clippers um and now there's sort of a shift in the tide. The Lakers not necessarily, you know, being the Lakers. I mean, when we when I saw yesterday the the lettering come off the uh, the arena, I mean, it was just a sign to me that the Lakers dynasty of the days of Kobe or even the early, you know, the LeBron days where they won uh, two years ago, it's it sort of speaks to how this organization is shifting. I think you know, there's another ho-hum run for the Lakers ahead, maybe a little bit down the road. Um, we're at the end of 2021. LeBron isn't getting any younger, and he still remains one of the greatest forces in the NBA right now, and one of the greatest obviously to ever play, but there is a change in Los Angeles that is certainly coming, and I think the lettering itself right now is just a symbol that this is this is a point where the West has completely flipped. We are no longer seeing it is no longer an era of dynasty teams. It is an era of young talent dominating the league. And you know, it's interesting that we I mentioned young talent because it's interesting. A lot of the game's brightest stars not even playing right now. You have Lillard out right now. You have Brooke Lopez out indefinitely. You have Luca missing his last game due to ankle issues. And you had Carl Anthony Towns and Giannis not playing. These are your best players, and they're not even out on the court. It's surprising to see how different the league looks when its best players aren't out there. But I think it lends itself to a better sense of competition that I think fans will really get into and be excited about. So definitely a lot to discuss in terms of the NBA. We'll get into that a little more as we get towards January, where we're going to have a clearer picture of the uh, of the season. But I want to move into the MLB a little bit just because we're at the point where we've reached the lockout. We knew it was coming. And as a fan, I'm I knew we were going to have it, and I think we're going to have a full season, but just the way that the owners and players negotiate with one another, it is just so just painful to watch. Every time there's just, oh, we're not going to be able to reach a deal. Oh, there's an indisputable aspect of the deal that no one agrees on, and we're going to have to sit for four more weeks about it to discuss it. And now at this point... You have fans locked out of social, not locked out literally, but fans who are looking for MLB content and craving it. They're not finding it. Fan, the, look at the rosters on the MLB app. There's no player likeness there. I mean, it's funny to see Evan Longoria's Instagram with his blank face, but this is a long-term issue. You can't be a sport that's losing younger fans and somehow think that this is going to positively impact your business. I know that you have to create a deal, but you have to be quicker in terms of understanding how this is going to impact your fan base. No TikTok, no Instagram, nothing can be shown with current stars. And 
in the long run, what does that say about your organization that all of the other three leagues are putting out quality content and you're at a point where you don't even think you can get back out on the field until March? And I know, you know, offseason moves beforehand, we were really excited. We had Seeger leave, Cindergaard, Marcus Simeon, all these great talents move from place to place and reshape the form of the league. Scherzer going to the Mets, a lot of things to think about there. But now you have a situation where the most exciting thing that people are talking about is the Hall of Fame ballot. And it's not even it's not even the one that is um, that the, the, uh, the writers are voting on. This is the committee votes where you have the golden era and the early days, which, you know, I know fans, you know, like like nuts like me will get excited about those but this is not what casual fans are interested in i know i'm going to talk about it a little bit here just you had four guys get in in the golden era about you had Minnie minoso jim cott gil hodges um they got in there um and then the biggest snub was dick allen who in no stretch of the word should have ever not been considered for this the fact that tony oliva jim cott and gil hodges all received enough votes but uh, but Dick Allen did not is mind boggling to me. His statistics alone compare favorably above all three of those players. And I got to think that if you look at sort of the historical context for a guy like Gil Hodges, I understand it. You know, he won a World Series in 69 as a manager and was a great first baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers for over 10 years. And, you know, he died prematurely in 1972, 50 years ago, actually. And now you're at the point where it's time to honor this man for his great contributions to the game. And I think he is well-deserving of that spot. But guys like Oliva and Cott, definitely a different story to me. And, you know, I, I mentioned Mini Minoso. Minoso, again, great contributions to the sport. A fantastic player coming in, mind you, late in his career. He had already started as a Negro League player and then moved into the big leagues and had a fantastic career despite being limited because obviously the color barrier wasn't broken until 1947. But now you're at the point where he wasn't recognized back then because the writers, I think, were a little stingier in terms, of, in terms of who got into the hall. But now you're at the point where you can see that despite these limitations that he obviously could not control, he still put together a Hall of Fame career, and he was certainly deserving of it. But when you look at Oliva and Cott, this is no bashing on them as a character. They are great people. I saw the reaction from Tony Oliva when he had got when he found out he got into the hall. It was heartwarming. I was so excited to see how happy he was. But on a career standpoint, if you compare him to other outfielders, he does not really match up perfectly. He's not even he's ahead of the only guy I saw from the modern era who he was ahead of was Harold Baines. And Baines didn't and and Baines was so far off. He was a great hitter and a great role model for the sport but in terms of his career contributions as a player was not deserving of the hall of fame a war under 40 as an outfielder and i think as a designated hitter you really have to show significant prowess at the plate in order to make it and that's what guys like edgar martinez and probably david ortiz have when i assume ortiz will eventually get elected to the hall but edgar already absolutely dominant offensive contributions and baines did not have that and Oliva is ahead of Baines, but there's not a lot of other guys out there who he sort of matches up with effectively. And if you're going to put Tony Oliva in, you got to put a guy like Dwight Evans in, who was a great defensive player for the Boston Red Sox in the 1980s. Good offensive force, 20 years in the league, absolutely dominant. A compiled a, a, a war over 60, which puts him in a pretty elite category for outfielders in Major League Baseball. And I feel as though if you look at the... The way that players are judged in terms of the ballot on the committees as in comparison to the um, the actual ballot itself. Got to see that there's a lot of favoritism there. I mean, in the Baines, in Baines's case, you had guys like Tony La Russa voting on his candidacy and La Russa was his manager for 10 years. It's hard to see how he could be impartial if he was a part of his life. A part of half of his baseball life and I think the same goes for a case like Oliva and Cott where you had a guy like I maybe Joe Torrey or Scherholz or John Scherholz or guys who were around them throughout their entire time in the league I think it's sort of 
I think having guys who played with them or, you know, were around them for the time is helpful in a sense, but I think it creates too much bias because I think guys from that era look at these guys more favorably and it makes it so that their candidacy is not necessarily looked at in a statistical standpoint as opposed to, you know, the eye test, which I think is a bit hard to look at in terms of Hall of Fame talent. But the actual Hall of Fame ballot itself, definitely going to be interesting to look at. We have Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, and Roger Clemens going into their final year of eligibility. And they were at the 60%, uh, Bonds and Clemens at the 60% threshold last year, and Kurt Schilling at 70%. And it looks like all three of them may not get in. When you have, you know, in terms of the steroid issue, look, if you had significant contributions to the game, I think steroids were inherent to the era so that you can look past it and give these guys, you know, your vote. I think Bonds, a Clemens, an A-Rod, they have the numbers clearly to get in, but I think there needs to be a point of someone that needs to say, hey, these guys took steroids. There needs to be something that sort of indicates that they were... Their impact, their impact on the game was affected by something that was not inherently a part of them. And I think voters have a legitimate point when they decide not to vote for steroid players. And I think it's fair to say that. But if you're going to let them in, I think there needs to be something that says that their contributions may not have been as effective as if it weren't for steroids. And I think a Bonds, a Clemens, and A-Rod definitely fit into that category. And the ballot itself, I think Ortiz definitely has the best shot. I think he will get in at the end of the day as sort of the only guy who um, sort of fits the mold. You know, there were some steroid connotations around him. I realized that. But the way that his, the a lot of the notes around him compared to the notes around Bonds are a little different. It's hard to say I can get into that a little more, but you have a different sort of look at when in terms of Ortiz as opposed to Bonds. So definitely Ortiz, but guys like Scott Rowland, Todd Helton, I think they're not going to get in this time, but their candidacies are certainly rising. I think Larry Walker completely threw away the cores bias out there, and I think that there's a lot of things to think about in terms of whether or not Colorado players will be looked at differently because of the atmosphere they played in. And I think Helton had a Hall of Fame career, and I think you have to look at him. Do we look at the Colorado bias? Well, we'll see. I think writers are less concerned about that now more than ever since Walker has gotten in. I think it opens the door for a guy like Helton, definitely. And Scott Rowland, defensive menace, top five greatest third baseman defensively, good offensive third baseman, compares just as well with any of the best third basemen of all time. I think guys like Schmidt, Brett, and Beltre are a little ahead of him, but someone like Brooks Robinson, definitely right on that same level. Uh, because, you know, Roland was a better offensive player, Robinson was a better defensive player, but in terms of the cumulative look at his statistics, I think Roland certainly fits the mold. So, Definitely things to watch there in terms of the Hall of Fame ballot. But we have a guest to get to, and it's going to be Matt Schulte this week, and he's going to dive a lot more into the lockout. And in terms of – he's going to talk about his own experiences first. He's going to discuss you know, his role in sports business and sort of his story and how he got involved and how he thinks the future of the business will, A, be impacted by the lockout, and, B, how the Royals organization, which is who he worked for, and his background at NYU – will impact both his decision-making as well as the team's decision-making going forward in a world that has been completely changed over the last two years in terms of ticket sales and anything else relating to that matter. So we're going to get to that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And this week, a very interesting guest joining us today. Uh, he works with the Kansas City Royals. He is an NYU grad. Joining us this week, Mr. Matt Schulte. He's going to be talking sports and the industry itself. Matt, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm so happy to have you here because, you know, when I uh, when I first uh, joined the university, you were very helpful, you know, describing, you know, your path, getting internships, all that kinds of stuff. And I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a good conversation and talk about uh, sports business. All right, so uh, first thing, you know, I want to lead off with you here. Uh, you know, you came out of NYU, uh, you did a lot of internships and stuff. I want to know just in terms of, you know, your experience in the field, just for our listeners, 
What do you think was one of the most difficult things you had to deal with just in terms of not necessarily obtaining the internships themselves, but just in sort of the field itself, what did you find the most challenging when you were sort of breaking in and doing all these internship kinds of kinds of things? Commitment, you know, the work effort, the, the workload. Uh, you know, when you work in sports, you're working nights, you know, weekends. Mm-hmm. If we have a game on 4th of July, you're working a holiday. Um, but that is the nature of working in any sport is, you know, nights and weekends. That's when the games are. So mm-hmm. getting used to that schedule um, is a little bit of an adjustment. Uh, baseball, there's a lot more home games than, you know, any other sport. So it, it can be a grind of a schedule where you're working, you know, two straight uh, weeks, um, that sort of thing. So getting used to that um, was an adjustment to start. Um, no, I've kind of learned to pace myself and, um, have a, a good work-life balance, which is important. Mm-hmm. So that that was one hurdle for sure, is, is working these unique hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is probably dividing out between being a fan and being a business person. Right. Um, and for me, especially when I'm working for my hometown team that you know I grew up rooting for, um, I care about the wins and losses. Uh, they're they're a team of my heart, but. You know, ultimately, I do, and NYU was good at teaching me this and kind of having that professional mindset mm-hmm. was to divide yourself out between the fan and, you know, the sports marketer, so to speak. So on a game day, I, I really do care more about the Royals brand and getting my job done and doing it correctly and making sure that goes smoothly as opposed to what the score is or um, batting averages or, or anything like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's important too to really kind of focus on doing the job um, as opposed to, you know, making sure I watch a certain play or pitch or that sort of thing. Right. And, you know, I, personally, just from my own standpoint, you know, I feel like this is a thing for college students that can be really difficult. And I'm sure it wasn't easy to jump into that. So and I'm sure, you know, also working with your hometown team didn't make that any easier to separate for you. But yeah. I'm sure, yeah, definitely right. something to think about. But so you've worked for the Royals now for 11 years. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. you've gone, you've went from sales, marketing, also, and then you sort of worked your way up throughout the, uh, throughout the organization. And now you're working in, uh, you're a senior manager now. What do you think was, uh, you know, on that journey from getting from, you know, a sales rep all the way up to a senior manager, what do you think helped you the most in sort of getting from that, you know, that uh, early, you know, entry level sales position all the way up to, you know, the higher level? What do you think, what do you think your employers saw in you that made them want to promote you? Yeah. Uh, Having energy every day, bringing, um, you know, positive energy and vibes personality, uh, work ethic is important, you know, being dedicated, committed, uh, working hard, asking questions, um, and being versatile. Um, I mean, I've been able to kind of stay relevant within the Royals and move around and shift. I've had four different jobs in my 11 years here, mm-hmm. and I think that's allowed me to, uh, you know, stay relevant and shift and adjust and, and learn different roles at the Royals. So willing to be flexible um, go with the flow, learn different jobs, uh, grow in certain areas, uh, be committed to the Royals as well. I mean, I could have easily abandoned ship, so to speak, you know, a year or two in. Um, I didn't do that. I was committed to the Royals, the Royals brand, the people here. Um, I try to be connected, get to know people, mm-hmm. um, and be open-minded. I mean, I, I had no sales experience before. I tried sales um, enjoyed the experience, but was more interested on the marketing side and eventually something, you know, came open. So, you know, a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time, Mm -hmm. but then also you got to put yourself in those positions to be in the right place at the right time. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly those sort of factors that, um, have allowed me to be here for 11 years and, Mm -hmm. and grow and develop. Wow. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting. You say that sort of remaining committed to the Royals, I'm sure, Obviously, that was a. Uh, I'm sure that might have been a little difficult. You know, it's a long grind. I'm sure, but I want to know. Do you think that that loyalty to the brand is still valuable nowadays? I feel like you know, if ever I go on LinkedIn, it's always about people getting these internships with different companies, and you know, they change from uh, from company to company, from organization to organization. And you know, you've remained consistent with the same organization for 11 years. Do you think employees value or employers? Do you think they value that sort of you know commitment to the organization? I think they do. Yeah, I think that's still important. It's still relevant. 
Uh, I mean, you're right. I mean, people do change and adjust and, and move around more often, more frequently these days. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too. But, you know, there's still value in the employee that is at, you know, one company for 10 plus years or 15 plus years. And um, especially if you're able to grow, develop, get promoted, um, get more responsibility. So, yeah, that's definitely still valued um, here at the Royals and within sports. Um, you know, when I did internships, it, mm-hmm. it was important to, for me to bounce around and get different experiences and try things out. Mm-hmm. But once I had a full-time job, I, I wanted to be somewhere that was stable, um, that I was happy, that it was a good fit for both parties. Um, and who knows? You know, I, I don't know in the future if, um, you know, I'll be here for another 10 years or at some point I'll want to move on somewhere else. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to not look too far down the road, kind of take it, I kind of, for me, I take it one season at a time and, at the end of each season, I kind of evaluate, you know, where I want to be and, and if it's the right fit. And so far, it's been the right fit to stay at the Royals. But, um, you know, it's definitely, I think, can look good on a resume to stay at one place and then grow at that one place uh, for a while. Mm. You know, I, I personally just, you know, when I see uh, internships and stuff, I feel like, you know, bouncing around is so important and then remaining committed to that one organization, I think, in your, I'm sure in your case that was certainly something to think about. But you know, I wanna I wanna go back a little bit, just really early on. You know, you started with the uh, the Kansas City Sports Commission, and then you know you were just out of college. You had went back to your hometown, obviously, and then you know bounced around then to more of the major networks. What do you think you learned from those first experiences? What do you think stood out to you as sort of like? Uh, I don't want to say like, you know, like things to learn, but I want to know like what exactly sort of made it so that these sort of baseline experiences could help you translate into these bigger positions. What what did you learn from sort of the smaller stuff? Yeah, I mean, you learn about the sports industry and the sports business industry, especially, you know, you learn in the classroom and, and the internships are a way to apply what you learn in a, in a real life, real world setting. Um, so really got to learn how the sports industry works, the key people, the key businesses, um, key topics that are discussed. Um, So all of that was important. Um, I learned what I like and what I didn't like, where a better fit was for me um, in terms of types of companies, um, types of work I was doing. Um, So it really gave me a better feel of of what I want to do and get into and what the industry is like and what skill sets I needed and you know, how to be a manager of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really gave me a good baseline, uh, so to speak, that allowed me to then, you know, take my career to the next level. Mm. And, you know, uh, the, us, those, obviously, those first experiences are so key. And now, you know, we're now, what, 16, you're 16 years removed from that now. Uh, I want to know, for, from that, you know, when you're walking in in 2006 to now, almost at the end of 2021, do you think your outlook has changed? Do you think when you walk into work every day that your life, you know, you sort of look at your life differently? Are you happy about how things have progressed? Uh, maybe did you want more? What exactly, you know, if you could say something to yourself from 15 years ago, what might that look like? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love what I do every day. And I think I often have to remind myself of that. I'm very thankful and grateful that I get to work in the sports industry um, that I get to go to the ballpark every day and, and work that, you know, we're really, we're not, you know, a, a life and death sort of matter. Mm-hmm. subject matter. We're entertainment property. Uh, we, we play baseball games. Um, and so, you know, I love what I do and I think it's important. And I did, I, when I started college, that was the key was to find a career that I loved what I did every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm very grateful also that, you know, my, the goal of my first day of college, I, I was able to find that and succeed and do it. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, your your goal at first day of college might not be the same as your last day of college, which is fine, but it worked out for me that it all stayed the same and I was able to um, continue that goal and find a career and in, in the major I had and um, kind of keep doing it. So yeah, I definitely feel like I found my niche. I found, um, you know, I want to work in the sports industry the sports business industry that's mm-hmm. my calling i feel like and mm-hmm. where i fit best and mm-hmm. so i'm glad i've been able to pursue that mm. oh, well i you know what 
but uh, you know i know people like us who are studying sports or want to get into it i think that sort of that passion and loving what you do is so important and so vital and i wonder you know to pivot off that do you think people you know up-and-comers my, like myself or anybody else out there do you think that up-and-comers is the world so different now whether it be COVID or anything like that do you think it's more difficult now? Do you think that things have changed so that, you know, people going into the industry might find it more difficult to get these internships or jobs? What, uh, what are your thoughts on sort of the industry as a whole, maybe not necessarily in the hiring aspect, but just the industry, you know, how strong is it right now? Where do you see that? Yeah, I think it's still strong. I I feel like there are now more opportunities to be involved in sports than, than any other time before. I mean, there just are different ways now. Um, there's so many different sport levels and engagement levels and different television platforms and uh, more companies getting into sports that, um, you know, you don't have to work directly for a professional team, that there's still so many different ways to be involved in sport in some way or fashion mm-hmm. um, than ever before. So I think there are more opportunities out there. Um, you know, sports did take a hit with COVID. I mean, we're in the business of getting people together and in COVID you couldn't do that, you right. know? And so um, it was definitely an adjustment during that year and a half and, and continues to still be that way of making sure that we can get people together safely and, and doing so correctly. Um, but yeah, that was a big hit for sure. When we didn't have, we went a whole season without fans in our ballpark. Um, and my whole job is solely based on having fans in our ballpark. So right. it was certainly an adjustment for me of, of how you engage fans in other ways. You know, we did a lot more on social media, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting more out in the community, um, thinking of ways to engage people outside the ballpark. Um, so it really kind of shifted our thinking and how to, um, you know, grow revenue, engage our fans beyond, you know, ticket sales and food and bev and merchandise and all that. So, um, we're definitely doing more on the content side now. So, yeah, it's um, really been an interesting year and a half to shift all of our focuses and adjust and adapt, and which we we're kind of doing anyway, but it just really expedited the process mm-hmm. um, to advance um, to more things uh, for the future. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be challenging. I, I can't imagine, you know, being a business of, and entertaining people. It's all about entertaining people, and it's a remarkable how right. you have to pivot this way and – I, you know, personally, when I saw it, it was just like, it worried me just like, are fans going to come back to the ballpark? And I want to know, you know, we're, we're about a year and a half removed. You know, I know the Royals this year, I'm pretty sure you guys were, were you full capacity throughout the whole, for about half the season, am I correct? Or was it like 40, 30%? We started the season at 50% or, or eh, that's not exactly right. We started the season with 10,000 fans. Mm-hmm. And then we slowly grew it from there. And by June, we were at 100% capacity. Uh-huh. So we kind of grew it. I think in May, we were at 50%. And then by June, we were at 100%. Gotcha. So about by, you know, the middle of the season, we were back to quote-unquote normal attendance numbers, which was good and helpful. Great. And, I'm, you know, I when I was, uh, when I'm thinking about the Royals here, you know, I see an organization. I know in terms of success, you got a World Series about seven years ago. And now you're sort of we're in you're in sort of a rebuild, but you know definitely a lot of talent out there that you know you're I'm sure you know with Merrifield, uh, Adalberto Mondesi, a lot of guys you're pretty excited about. But just in terms of for the fans, I want to know. I know you're in the interest of serving fans. Do you think that now more than ever? I'm sure with social media, technology, innovations. Do you think now more than ever, winning is more important to keep fans in the ballpark? Do you think that it's more vital now or do you see other means of attracting fans out there? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it is oh, uh, very important. I mean, we've seen our attendance numbers dip um, with having losing seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we were winning games, you know, everything was much better and, and business was better here. Right. Um, so there's definitely a hunger to be competitive, to be good. Um, your, your business will see that. I mean, I, I live in the world of, of doing all the bells and whistles to get people here, you know, doing promotions, doing special events, doing giveaways. So I do live in the world of getting people here beyond the wins and losses. Right. Um, and there is a space for that, especially in baseball, when we have so much inventory of games and open seats. And there's definitely a place for that in baseball to get people here, especially the casual fan that, right. you know, really just wants the bobblehead or mm-hmm. wants to see a fireworks show. Right. Or, 
you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, ultimately in the long run, uh, you want to win games and, and ownership wants to win games, the baseball operations people, I mean, everybody top down. Um, so that's really priority one here is to win baseball games, um, to get back to the playoffs, to be relevant because we you certainly can't sustain losing seasons here. I mean, you see your season ticket uh, member base drop, you see TV ratings drop, um, sponsors aren't as interested. So really the, the best way to have a, a, a good business in any sport is just be a, a flat out winning team. That that solves a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know what, I, I, I don't know if that's, this is the same case for you, but I wish it weren't that way. I feel like, you know, just going to the game for me, it's just, it was such an enjoyable experience. Just, you know, just the game itself winning and lo- winning and losing obviously was so important to me, but you know, I still value that experience, you know, more than anything. And actually, I want to wrap up with you by sort of talking, you know, when we have sports business professionals on the show, we like to ask them about sort of where they see the industry going. And I want to ask you as our final question, what do you see sort of coming down the road in terms of fan interaction, integration, whatever you want to call it? What do you see in the future of the industry for the fan? What do you see as Getting how are people gonna you know how are people gonna go to the ballpark? Why do you think fans will keep coming to the ballpark? Just you know what innovations you see. Just talk a little bit about what you think the future holds for baseball and for the fan itself. Yeah, um, and you've probably heard this already, but you know it's obviously more digital, more social, mm-hmm. um, more technological advances. I mean, going you know ticketless or um, uh, digital with tickets. Um, it's something that we've really done a lot with, um, same with uh, at the concession stands. Um, you know, our social media and content team has, you know, quadrupled in size since I started here. I mean, we're producing and controlling our own content now more than ever, mm-hmm. um, doing more on social media, um, finding more ways to uh, use technology within the ballpark and the fan experience. Um, so you'll see that. Uh, different ways to watch our games uh, down the road, probably, whether it's streaming or um, on an app or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking, uh, working more and more with baseball on, um, yeah, how to integrate Rora's content into someone's cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, all going that way in terms of digital, social media, content creation, um, uh, you know, virtual reality, all that stuff. Um, yeah, there's still value and 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 money and just a flat out sign a home plate sign behind home you know home plate and there's still interest and right. in, in signage and um tabling at the ballpark and hospitality and suites and, and all that so um none of that's going away there's just uh, more opportunities to grow connect to our fans um we, we're seeing our players are more interested in being involved whether it's a cause they support or social media efforts, uh, they're more willing to help us and do stuff um, with us. So we're able to highlight the players and their personalities more often. Um, so it's, it's all those elements that we're, you know, continuing to grow, um, especially in the area of analytics as mm. well. Oh yeah. Um, not only baseball, side, but the business side mm-hmm. is kind of growing our analytics um, operation on the business side of trying to understand our fan base, how they interact. Um, what causes them to buy tickets, when do they buy tickets, where are they from, understanding um, their tendencies, what their demographics are, um, to better market to those fans. And right. so we can do more niche marketing, so to speak. Instead of doing a billboard or a commercial, we more do a targeted approach on certain elements. Um, so you're seeing more of that as well. Right. It's so. It seems like all this these innovations make it so that you can target, you know, a really specific type of fan. I mean, I'm sure there's like, I'm sure there are ways to figure out, you know, oh, here's a 36 year old male who lives in the suburbs of Kansas City. He's interested in X, Y, and Z, and we're going to promote to him this way because it's the most effective way to reach him. And I'm sure, you know, there's this technology has sort of changed the way you market. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, think, I'm yeah. Sure. I, I figured as much. I mean, it and, was, yeah, I just, you know, and I was, what I'm thinking is just like, how it's it's so remarkable how the industry has changed from 10 years ago to now. So, Matt, we really appreciate your time. And before you go, as a fan, optimistic, pessimistic on the Royals this season, what are your thoughts there? <laughs> yeah, optimistic. Um, you know, the next thing for us is the collective bargaining agreement. Oh, yes, hopefully, that's right. Yeah, um, Everything goes smoothly on, on that end in terms of um, 
you know, that going happening uh, coming up. But uh, yeah, hopefully we have uh, baseball next year, uh, full season. Um, we feel good about our team. I think we'll be competitive. Um, there's a lot of young talent in our minor league system, especially in the pitching front. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel good about where our team is going to be in the next two, three years that we're going to be competitive. Um, we're going to be back in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the worst of it's behind us. And I think we're definitely trending upward in terms of our talent mm-hmm. um, and that will be competitive. Soon. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, Asa Lacey, very excited, great left-handed pitcher uh, coming up in the ranks. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have, uh, I, you know, when I see Kansas city, I think of it as such a great sports town with the chiefs, obviously, uh, you know, and this two, these two such powerful organizations. So I'm really hoping for your success too. So Matt, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate you talking to us this week. Yeah. Thanks Ian. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week in in-depth on sports. Special thanks to Henry, who's my information producer, giving me all the info for uh, all the topics we talked about this week. Uh, Join us again next week. We're going to have Jeff Mole talking sports marketing with us. Thanks again, everybody. See you next week.